The Guardian. Nova is America's most watched science series. You'll find it every night at 7.50 on PBS. Sky Channel 166, Virgin Media 243. PBS, where television matters. Hello, this is the Business Podcast. I'm Tom Clark. Europe is running out of roads. There was, said George Osborne, just six weeks to save the euro. But that was six weeks ago. This week, as independent financial monitors from the IMF arrive in Italy, the eurozone's third largest economy faces being frozen out of credit markets. Silvio Berlusconi says he's going. The Greek Prime Minister has already gone. But solutions are still awaited. If Europe is at a crossroads, it's a crossroads near the edge of a cliff. Joining me this week, we have The Guardian's economics editor, Larry Elliott. On the line from Rome, we've got our correspondent, John Hooper. And here in the studio, Robert Frank, who's an economist as well as a columnist for The New York Times and also the author of The Darwin Economy, a book we'll return to later. A warm welcome to you all. Now, Greece fell prey to the markets long ago, and now it's Rome that's under siege. But if Italy's economy goes down, it could take the Eurozone with it. As we record, these are the stark facts. Interest rates on the country's 10-year bonds have reached and exceeded 7%. The so-called point of no return that beset Greece... Portugal and Ireland before they had to bring in official help. Europe's bailout fund, meanwhile, is not yet in place and the rest of the world has told Europe, get your act together before we help you out. Now, some say the only real chance of rescuing Italy is through the European Central Bank, but the weight of German opinion is still inhibiting it from it acting decisively. Now, John Hooper, we're recording on Wednesday morning and it's a fast moving situation but maybe the first question is after the rather mixed reports last night Silvia Berlusconi has he resigned or not yes um well rather (laughs) he has pledged to resign um (laughs) and this morning he was at pains to uh, assure everyone that he meant what he said that he really would go once parliament had passed the package of austerity measures, which it's agreed with the European institutions. And that was a doubt because directly the government falls, then Parliament is, is hamstrung and the measures could have been the victim of that. So on the surface, this appears to be a, an act of great political responsibility. Uh, the, the market's original uh, reaction to Berlusconi resigning was in fact uh, to, uh, was entirely positive. But since then, uh, the worries have uh, resurfaced because of what comes next. And that has been exacerbated this morning because Berlusconi has made it very clear that what he wants now is an election. And one of his ministers said, well, if that happens, then we'd be looking at, say, February. Now, that's three months of acute political instability in a country which is, as you've just said, at the eye of the storm. So as precisely in Greece, where we had a referendum and then an instant election on the cards and then the whole thing was pulled off and postponed for a bit, the interface between politics and economics is a complete mess in Rome. We don't know where it's um, going at all. 
What we know is that uh, he has said that um, he will uh, let that bill go through Parliament, and that is certainly one area of, of, of assurance. But what we don't know now is what is going to happen with respect to the government. The initiative passes not to Berlusconi, but to the president, the head of state, Giorgio Napolitano, and he will uh, start to act, though, only after Berlusconi has resigned. He has got to start those consultations when Berlusconi goes. So we have at least uh, a number of days to get this bill through Parliament. Uh, it could take even 10, 15 days, even longer, uh, though the opposition is pressing for it to be done very quickly and said uh, this morning that uh, its politicians would work over the weekend to ensure that that was true. We have the risk that, 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 that things won't be settled, um, maybe even this side of Christmas. And, and could you just um, recap the listeners what kind of things are in this bill? Is it, is it sort of labour market reforms and stuff or is it just budget cuts? Now, it is a wide range of, of, of measures. Um, in fact, what uh, has happened is that into this legislation has been wound the two successively stiffer austerity packages agreed back in the summer, plus a number of amendments forced on the Berlusconi government by the European institutions in, in recent weeks, uh, adding in measures that the Europeans believe will not just cut the deficit, which was the emphasis back in the summer, but also stimulate growth. One thing that's not in that package, however, is the pension reform that uh, the Europeans wanted to see from the Italians. Um, that has been left out. Uh, but there are measures in there that uh, liberalization measures that um, hopefully will do something to stimulate growth because that really is Italy's problem. Um, the deficit is uh, to a large extent under control. The big fear in the markets is that Italy is heading back into recession. And turning to the markets, Larry, the 7% number um, keeps popping up in news reports about this. Could you just explain for us, uninitiated, wh why, why is it significant if interest rates suddenly go up to 7% for the government? Well, there are two reasons. One is that in the past, 7% has been the trigger um, for countries that um, are in trouble to, to go beyond a threshold and require a bailout. So that was true for Greece, it was true for Ireland, and it was true for Portugal. So 7% has, has always been the, the line in the sand, really, for Italy. Uh, and the second reason is that Italy, although it, its its budget deficit is, is actually not that high, mm. it's got accumulated debts over many, many years of something like 120% of its, of its national output, and it has to service that debt. And obviously, if you're paying 7%, or more on that to, to refinance that debt, then that becomes very, very expensive indeed. And I think Italy's got something like 300 billion euros worth of debt to refinance in the course of 2012. And once you get to levels like 7% or above, then that becomes prohibitively expensive for the government. So there are two, there are two reasons. I think there is, there is this real reason, fundamental reason, but there's also the sort of psychological market reason why 7% has been seen as a, as a very significant number. And is there anyone saying, 
I remember with the news reports about Greece, there was a lot of stories about how, well, you know, they were in particular trouble because they'd borrowed short. They borrowed for the short term. Italy maybe is borrowed for a bit longer. Is that going to give... Italy a bit more breathing space or do you think really uh, no? it, it, well it might do but it's that's true Greece certainly had a lot of short-term debt Britain is at the other extreme got quite a lot of long-term debt Italy's somewhere in the middle but the fact is that Gre- Italy's debt is very very high I mean it's, yeah. it's, it's one of the biggest bond markets in the world just because of the accumulated size of Italy's debts over very many years and the, the problem is going to be one in which is sort of it's caught between a rock and a hard place it's got very slow growth which means its GDP is not growing very very quickly but it's also you know got these very high interest payments on its debt so you're being squeezed into in two places at once really what you, you know you either need to grow the economy very quickly in which case the interest rates are not that much of a problem or you need to get interest rates down in which case the debt servicing is not a problem but having very high debt servicing costs and a slow growing economy is a really toxic mixture for Italy and that's what's that's what the cause of the problem is really I mean you both come back to this point about low growth and Italy's been stuck with low growth for a while John Hooper but does that mean that the Italians blame the eurozone for their rather stagnant decade this could become a rather important question couldn't it if Italians turn out not to like the eurozone very much because it hasn't brought prosperity well the low growth um, is a phenomenon especially of the past decade now two things have happened in the the last 10 years. Uh, one is, as you say, that Italy has entered the Eurozone. And the other is that for most of that time, eight years out of 10, it's had Silvio Berlusconi as its prime minister. Now, right now, I think more Italians are prepared to blame the latter, Berlusconi, than the former, the Eurozone. Uh, his popularity rating, in fact, is below 25%. And that is largely because of the economic failure of his government. It has not managed to claw back more than a couple of percent of the five in terms of GDP growth that it lost as a result of the 2008 credit crunch and its effects. And what I think is becoming increasingly clear is that his government just never had a recipe for cutting through the quite deeply seated problems in Italian society that are standing in the way of growth, incumbent monopolies, vested interests, uh, a general conservatism, a reluctance to change that is at the seat of many of the problems of this country, um, particularly, for example, in the labor market, where we have a very sharp distinction between closeted insiders protected by the trade unions and uh, exposed outsiders who are working uh, mostly young and women and people from ethnic minorities working on short-term contracts with no prospect of ever getting an indefinite one. Robert we'll turn to your book properly in in a moment but just listening to what John's saying there there's a perception of a reality of stagnation in Italy and a sense from the wider world that liberalisation, getting rid of these kind of old guilds or whatever it is that are inhibiting competition will put it back on the path to prosperity. But you've got a rather nuanced take on competition and whether it's a spur to prosperity or not in your book, haven't you? I I don't quarrel with the idea that New competition often drives markets to produce products that, that people are delighted to have and, and spur new investment. So, so no, there's a, there's a big part of the traditional invisible hand story that I embrace wholeheartedly. Where, where I, 
I part company with that story in the book is is to add Darwin's observation that sometimes individual and group interests are in conflict. Uh, oftentimes they're in harmony, and, and in those cases we do get invisible hand-like results. But when, when they're in conflict, as they are when when people are competing for scarce slots in a hierarchy and, and where, where competition is really uh, a zero-sum game, then you, you see a lot of mutually offsetting activities spawned by additional competition, and that's not all to the good. Um, and uh, what do you make more generally from an American perspective of what we're seeing in Europe, this big panic in the markets being answered, it seems, by a recipe of essentially austerity seems to be the main... Yeah, that, that does seem to be the, the European answer for economic crisis is cut government spending, try to balance budgets by by slashing services. Uh, this flies in the face of everything we thought we'd learned since the Great Depression. Uh, we're in a, a worldwide demand shortfall at the moment. Uh, it's, it's not that we don't have the capacity to produce much more than we're producing now. It's that people aren't spending enough to, to get producers to produce it. And I think that's true on the consumer side, since they're busy paying down debt that they accumulated during the the credit boom. Uh, Many of them are afraid they'll lose their jobs if they haven't already. We won't look to to consumers to lead the way out of a downturn. That's true as well for businesses. They're sitting on a ton of cash. They could be investing. They've got plenty of cash to invest, but they've got no reason to, since the the companies uh, right now can produce much more than people want to buy with their existing capital equipment. So basically, that that leaves the only other actor on the scene with the capacity to take effective measures to stimulate spending is government. Y equals C plus I plus G. We teach our macro students. C is not going anywhere, neither is I. That leaves G. And here the emphasis has been on cutting G, not increasing G. I mean, I think you have to— Why is income, is yeah, wise income, and that's consumption plus investment plus government. And the first two aren't going anywhere. You got to you got to make room for the third to grow. And and I think you you really need to get the right timeline focus. We're trying to cut government spending in the short run. Uh, that's not the solution. We got we got to get revenue up, and and that means getting the economy back on its feet. Larry, I mean, I guess instinctively you agree with a lot of that. But Sylvia Berlusconi's government's not in a position to borrow a lot more right now, is it? I think I, I mean I totally agree with Robert saying what Robert's saying. I think that austerity has reached really has reached the end of the line here. I mean essentially Europe's Europe's response to this has been the same as Herbert Hoover's during the Great Depression, which has been to slash government spending and to actually impose more austerity, which has just had the effect of driving the European economy deeper into recession, which actually makes the accumulated debts that much hard, higher and that much harder to pay off. This is absolutely foolish strategy which is actually making the problem worse and will eventually I think break up the euro unless unless somebody actually starts to do something different I mean Dennis Healy once said that there's a law of holes if you're in one stop digging and I think that what the Europeans are doing is just carry on digging and they're carrying they're carrying on digging an even bigger hole for themselves here I mean and I think that you know essentially you know governments are quite strapped for cash but ultimately they've got to they've got to make a decision which is do we actually relax fiscal policy a bit to try and get the economy going 
going or not. And I think that essentially the problem of, of, of budget deficits and fiscal fiscal shortfalls in countries is essentially a growth and an employment problem rather than a de- deficit problem. And until European countries realise that sort of fundamental Keynesian analysis, which we all thought we'd learnt from the 1930s, we are going to end up with a depression in Europe and the breakup of the euro because that is the that is the way this is heading. But you, you can't solve this problem by actually sucking even more consumption out of people's pockets. That is not going to be the answer to this problem. You've got to get people spending. And if the people won't spend, the government has to start the kickstart the process for it. I mean, that is the sort of the fundamental, the one big lesson we thought we'd learnt from the 1930s. And the Europeans seem to want to sort of return us to a pre-1930 world where ba- budgets were balanced come what may, and the answer to every problem was to cut government spending and actually, uh, you know, impose austerity on people. And it just is not going to work. But but aren't we seeing this morning that Silvia Berlusconi, for example, cannot borrow anymore? So what you're really saying is that the likes of the Germans are going to have to start doing some borrowing for him. I, I, if, I was, if I was the Europeans at the moment, I would tell the European Central Bank to start buying up Italian bonds. I mean, that, that in the short term, that has got to be the answer here if they want to keep the euro alive. The Germans, I think, have a, have a sort of binary choice here. If they want to keep the euro, the euro going, they have to instruct the European Central Bank to get into the market and buy Italian bonds, driving up the price and driving down the interest rate on them. If they don't do that, then Italian bond yields are going to soar to 8%, 9%. And we know clearly that Italy is a country which is too big to fail in the context of the euro but at the moment it's too big to bail there's not a pot of money out there that's big enough there was a pot of money big enough to sort out Greece and Portugal and Ireland fairly small countries there is not a pot of money available to the eurozone to bail out Italy so the only the only actor that can really do anything in the short term is the European Central Bank but it's not being allowed to do that mainly because the Germans won't let it the Germans have got this instinctive fear of printing money, the European Central Bank doing what the, the, the German Central Bank did in the 1920s, printing too much money and having you know, wheelbarrows of cash trundling through the streets. That, that is an instinctive, visceral fear for the Germans. But essentially, there is now a stark choice. You either get the ECB to do it or you, allow the, or you watch the European project fragment. I think it's a simple I mean, John, just finally um, from you, in Rome, is that the conversation? Are people thinking something big's going to have to happen or we're out of the euro, which seems to be the way the discussion's now gone in Athens, or do you think people are still in denial? I think there is a lot of denial and a lot of um, failure to recognise the gravity of the situation. Italians have consistently comforted themselves with the fact that while the public debt is very high, the private debt is very low, and that is true. Um, But in a way, it's a symptom of the problem. The problem uh, is that Italy has this enormous public debt because not enough private wealth has been transferred. And I'm talking here over a period of decades, going back to the 1970s, into public coffers. And, And what's obstructed it has been tax evasion that has been quite deliberately encouraged by the state. The Christian Democrats turned a blind eye to it because they wanted to create a nation of small businessmen, uh, business people, and shopkeepers and farmers. Berlusconi uh, has repeatedly given hints that he really doesn't mind about it because the theory has always been that, well, it will unleash Italian creativity. And 
that's how they've got into a situation of having this enormous debt. And it's that, of course, that's the problem for the markets, not the fact that uh, Italians have uh, actually quite fat bank accounts, though they're, I must say, getting much, much thinner as time goes on. Well, thank you very much, John. I know you've got a busy day um, to get on with in terms of covering this fast-moving situation. So for any um, listeners who want more on the unfolding Euro disaster, look at guardian.co.uk forward slash business over the course of the day, and uh, there'll be a, a, a good deal more there, I'm sure. Now, in Robert Frank's new book, The Darwin Economy, he makes the provocative claim that the real founder of economics is not Adam Smith with his invisible hand, um, the, the chap most of us might think of as the father of the discipline, but instead Charles Darwin. I suppose we'd better start by asking you, Robert, what on, what on earth you mean? Yeah, and I, I, I want to state right at the outset, Tom, that I don't imply any disrespect for Smith at all. I, I think my quarrel in the book is much more with his modern disciples, especially on our side of the Atlantic, uh, who I, I think uh, are far more enthusiastic and, and narrow in their view of the invisible hand argument of Smith than he ever was. Uh, they, they think that Smith's prescription was just push government out of the way and let markets work their magic. Selfish people will somehow be driven by an invisible hand to produce the greatest good of all, for all. Uh, and, and yes, that is a pretty remarkable story. I think the fact that no one before Smith had told it in such a clean way is, is, is going to make it a, a, an enduring intellectual milestone in human history, for sure. Uh, the the producers introduce cost-saving innovations precisely in the hope to make more money, not to help society. Uh, but it's the spread of them and the extra competition from rivals struggling to recoup their own competitive position that forces prices down in the end. And so it, all that churning uh, redounds to the benefit of consumers, finally. Uh, not the business firms, but the consumers. That's a, that's a brilliant story. Uh, but what, so that's where Smith leaves off? That. Smith didn't think he always got good results. He was worried mainly about uh, scoundrels, people with market power. They'd, they'd meet for merriment, and the conversation would quickly turn to conspiracies to defraud workers or, or, or consumers. Uh, that was probably a bigger problem in Smith's day than now. I mean, they're still up to mischief when they can, but I think competition is a lot more vigorous now. You can't sell somebody a bad product at an inflated price for too long now. I mean, it's too easy for rival firms to to find a, an unhappy customer and make him aware that there's a better thing on offer. So so I, I worry less about the conventional social critic from the left's bogeyman, the, the, the monopolist, the, the person with market power. I do worry about those people uh, buying favors from the state. That's a separate problem. But, but in terms of exploiting workers or consumers, that's less, less of a problem now than, than I think it ever has been and not a serious problem. Where, where uh, I think Darwin saw things much more clearly than Smith was he saw that natural selection molded traits for their ability to help individuals survive and reproduce successfully. They, they might help the larger groups, but uh, oftentimes they were in direct conflict with the interests of larger groups. So you look at the the antlers of the bull elk. Uh, that's an example in the second category. They, they help the bulls compete with one another successfully for access to mates. They're a polygynous species like most vertebrates. Uh, they take more than one mate if they can. 
So, of course, males fight bitterly with one another for mates. Uh, if some succeed in taking more than one, others are left with none. And so that's the ultimate loser position in the Darwinian scheme. Uh, and I think for that reason, uh, any mutation that coded for larger antlers was extremely uh, heavily favored. It spread quickly. The mutations accreted. Now we've got the modern animals with antlers that span four feet. Uh, they weigh 40 pounds. That's a horrible handicap for them as for bulls as a group. If they're chased into the woods by, by wolves, they have very limited ability to maneuver in, in, in crowded quarters. They're easily surrounded and killed. If they could vote on the matter, and here's where collective interest comes in, <laughs> they, they would immediately favor a proposition to trim everyone's antlers back by half. You know, it's, it's relative antler size that decides the outcome of the battle, so none of the battles would be decided differently, but they'd all be better able to escape from wolves. What's not to like about a proposal like that? But that's not the way it works in evolution. Uh, it, the, you need big antlers or else you don't leave any copies of your antlers behind in the next generation. So let's just bring this back to the economy, though, for, for a minute. Uh, is the analogy there with firms who might need, I don't know, bigger advertising campaigns to cancel out the other ones? It, or is it, it more with consumers? It, we see it in every sphere where there's competition. Uh, so, so Darwin's insight, just in a few words, was that Many important domains of life are graded on the curve, just like school kids are graded on the curve. It's, it's not how strong you are. It's not how fast you are. It's not how big your advertising budget is uh, or how tall your sign is. It's, it's how those things compare with the people you're competing against. And, and to prevail, you've got to do better than they do, whether you're absolutely spending a lot or spending a little is, is of secondary importance. And so again and again we see Oh, if you're an investment banker looking for a, a scarce position, you know, lots of people want those positions. You're told to look good when you show up for your interview. Everybody wants to. But if, if others are showing up in a 600-pound suit and you show up in one wearing 300 pounds, you're probably not as likely as they are to get a call back. Uh, so better for you to show up in one costing 600 pounds yourself. Better still, maybe one costing 1,200 pounds. Uh, but then... Everybody faces those same incentives, and if we're all spending 1,200 pounds on a suit, we're none of us any more likely to get the job than if we'd spend 300 pounds. So it's, it's that aspect that I think leads to the, the, the prodigious waste we often see in the market system. It's not because we're stupid. It's because our incentives as individuals just cut against what our interest as a group might be. So, Larry, um, you write about the whole field of the economy and finance. Do you see that insight, this idea of effort cancelling one person's effort cancelling out another person's effort do you think that's got a wide application across i don't know finance i think shopping i think almost certainly this theory would explain quite a lot of the seemingly bizarre behavior that took place in the financial markets ahead of the crash all sorts of perverse incentives and and what a what a sink that industry has been for our our talent i mean there were uh 44 percent of the graduating class in 2007 from Princeton University, one of the, the, the brightest groups anywhere in our country, they took jobs in the financial services industry. And, and so their task is to try to figure out the, how to forecast what an asset price will, will land at 10 seconds before the next quickest forecast. Because if you're the first to get there, you can make a bundle of money trading on that, that information. But the society's interest isn't served much by getting there 10 seconds quicker. That's just uh, all quarreling over who, who gets what, what 
part of the gains. You know, it's it's not value added. It's it's value. You know, you're fighting over crumbs off the cake. Basically, yeah. we do, do we really need more people who are going to, you know, trade derivatives out there, or do we need more engineers and more you know, scientists? Exactly. And the thing, I mean, there is there is a website. I think someone was telling me that which actually shows in, people are doing engineering courses how to get fat cat jobs in the city i mean that this kind of perverse way in which our education system is now channeling people into into professions for which they're not really being trained and they're probably not going to be as useful as they would be if they were out there building bridges or solving some of the big problems of mankind but actually what the, the incentive system from a very very early stage in universities now channels people into pretty much non-productive uses of their talent in my view socially uh, worthless was it so, I mean, uh, Dad Turner turn said that. I mean, you know, and that, and that, but there, you can see why as an individual if you're an individual at university being offered a hundred thousand dollars to go and work for Goldman Sachs as opposed to twenty thousand dollars to go and work for a local authority or for a for an engineering company then and you've got very big debts it's in your interest to pay off the debts very quickly and go and work for the for the investment bank but society but, might be the loser the society is the loser so I mean Robert one thing that's interesting about because lots of people have made uh, if they've not made the darwin link they've made these kind of observations in the past but one thing you do in an interesting twist is say that there's a straightforward policy um that you could derive out of it in terms of tax could you just say a bit about that right yeah i i think uh, you asked what domains we saw this in uh I, we mentioned the allocation of talent across different industries but it's also in the consumption domain so You've seen this happening here in the UK too, but it's happened to an even greater degree in the US, which is that in- incomes have been growing only for people at the top of the ladder in our country. I, th- I think it's been a little bit more dispersed here, but there's much, been a trend yeah. in that direction here as well. Yeah. And so at, at, among CEOs, the pay scales now are really quite uh, lofty, and these people have so much more money at their disposal. Naturally, they, they buy bigger and better of everything. That's not a moral indictment of them. That's what everybody does. But, but you have to ask whether, the, whether there's any real gain from the dollars being spent beyond a certain point. So if, if, you, if you looked at a country where all the mansions were 20,000 square feet and then could compare well-being levels of the the wealthy in that country with the corresponding levels of the wealthy in another country otherwise identical where the mansions were 40,000 square feet uh, do you really think the well-being levels would be higher in the country with the bigger mansions I'd be willing to bet anything that they'd be lower just because when everybody has a bigger mansion it's a lot of trouble to manage those bigger properties and if (laughs) the only reason you needed one was to entertain in the style expected for your circle Better you all have 20000 than 40000 So the, those extra dollars are, are just raising the bar that defines how expensive the coming-of-age party needs to be, how big the house needs to be. All, all those things uh, are being spent in ways that, that uh, are, are not really yielding any value for people. And if, if, we, if we could somehow gently steer some of those dollars into other uses, it would be a win for everyone. The, the people who didn't spend as much making their mansions bigger wouldn't be giving up anything of value if they all did it in tandem, since it's relative mansion size that matters beyond some point. And, and there are lots of useful things those same dollars could buy. So how would you how would you go about doing that in tax terms then? Yeah, the the you don't you don't want to tell people that they can buy this or buy that uh, and, and not this or that. I mean, the kind of prescriptive regulation we've tried in the environmental d- domain ended up being very costly and ineffective. 
The tax approach in the environmental domain worked much better. We taxed pollution, and then firms on their own figured out cheap ways to filter the smoke out. I think the same uh, logic governs how we ought to attack the problem of, of spending that has external effects on others. Uh, so, so if my incentive is to build too big a mansion, just uh, looking at my own individual interests, then why not just gently make it lessen my interest to do that by, by taxing me? And, and so the main proposal in the book is scrap the income tax altogether, in its place adopt a very steeply progressive household expenditure tax. And the way that would work is you'd report your income to the tax authorities the same as you do now, and then you'd document how much you'd save during the year. Uh, people in the States do that now for tax-exempt retirement accounts, which I think you have some equivalents of here, too, in the U.K. So those two numbers, once they're on the table, the difference between them, your income minus your savings, that's how much you spent during the year. And then knock off a big standard deduction, an exemption of, say, 20,000 pounds for a family of four, that's your taxable consumption. And you pay tax at a very low rate on that number starting out. But as the number grows uh, to very high levels, the tax rate on the next dollar can go much higher than the tax rate on income because not only do we not have to worry about choking off savings and investment incentives uh, with higher marginal tax rate the way we would with an income tax, in, in this case, we'd actually stimulate savings and investment by having higher marginal tax rates. So if you think about a, a, a wealthy uh, baron thinking about adding a two million pound addition to his mansion, if, if this tax were in effect, there might be a marginal uh, rate of 100% on his, his, next dollar, his next pound of consumption expenditure, given that he's already spending so much. And so that would make the addition cost twice as much as before. And so he'd scale back, and others like him would scale back. And are you sort of saying he'd still be just as chirpy as he would be if he had the two extra bedrooms, because having one extra bedroom in this more taxed world is still going to mean he's got the edge over everything Yeah, that's, that's the fiscal alchemy inherent in the tax. You, you transform lead into gold with this step because if everybody builds a smaller addition onto his mansion, the resulting mansions satisfy just as well as if they'd all built a bigger addition. Uh, and in the meantime, he's paid some tax. That can help fix the roads he, he drives to work on. Uh, he, you've got some incentive for him to put additional money into savings. That helps the income level of the country grow more rapidly. Uh, it, it's, a, it's a tax that everybody ought to be in favor of. If you're rich, you ought to like this tax. It'll, it'll protect you against having to blow your hard-earned earnings on, on coming-of-age parties and bigger mansions. Uh, and and if, if you're just a regular taxpayer, here's a source of revenue to help pay down these deficits that are worrying you. What do you reckon, Larry? Can everyone be a winner with this sort of thing? Sounds like a good idea to me. I'd, I'd be interested to see see, see how, how it would work. But it does sound, uh, sounds an intriguing idea, yeah. <laughs> Excellent. Well, thank you very much uh, to both of you, Larry Elliott and to Robert Frank. And that's all we've got time for this week. The producer was Phil Maynard. I'm Tom Clark, and thanks very much indeed for listening. Nova is America's most watched science series. You'll find it every night at 7.50 on PBS. Sky Channel 166, Virgin Media 243. PBS, where television matters. For more great downloads, go to guardian.co.uk forward slash audio.